I don't even know what take this is anymore. We've done so many at this point. I'm tired already. Uh, but here we go. It's time for Teachers Like Us Extra Credit with my mom, Alyssa. What up, peeps? It's Alyssa, and welcome to another episode of Teachers Like Us Extra Credit. Um, how did you like that new intro by Sister Bear? Awesome, right? Um, so I apologize in advance. I know Andre and I have been on hiatus way longer than any of us anticipated. Um, when we left you last, we thought we'd be out of school for like three weeks max. Um, now look at us. We've been in quarantine for like 11 weeks um, with no end in sight. So... Andre and I are trying to figure out this distance recording thing and how that's going to work. And hopefully this week we'll finally get our stuff together. And by our stuff, I mean my stuff because I've been busy. I'm not going to lie. But in any case, the date today is Sunday, May 24th, 2020. The price of gas in the greater Toronto area is 69.9 cents per liter. Um, It is currently 27 degrees Celsius. And yesterday, Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto was flooded with Fulios picnicking like we're not in the middle of a pandemic. I kid you not, I saw a picture of the park and it was body to body in a time when we're supposed to be practicing physical distancing and keeping gatherings to a maximum of five people. So um, I think we're going to be here a while. Like, I don't I don't see us getting back to whatever our new normal is going to look like um, for a while because people aren't even trying to comply. But I digress. Uh, Amidst this beautiful weather, I'm still knee deep in coursework for the final term of my MED in critical studies. Um, This term, I decided to take a course outside of my critical studies area and explore the world of curriculum instruction and instruction, sorry, um, with a course in curriculum development. As per usual, though, I'm approaching everything with a critical eye because I'm really concerned with how our current curriculum further disenfranchises our most vulnerable students and what we as educators can do to ensure that we're promoting equity in our education system. Um, I should also apologize if you can hear the bear cubs in the background. That's because, you know, we're podcasting in a pandemic. So uh, you take or you get what you get and you don't get upset. That's the (laughs) that's the saying. Right. So. This week, we're talking about planning and personnel in curriculum development. So, of course, I took more of an interest in the personnel aspect and how individuals, groups and communities create curriculum. Andre and I actually touched on this topic during our Everything is Curriculum episode um, when we walked you through some of the steps for how we develop curriculum and how we implement instructional design. So I always think it's really important when we're looking at anything to do with human behavior or the way that individuals, um, again, groups or communities impact something. I feel like that's always a great time to look at something through the lens of equity, because with our own biases and prejudices, um, we automatically bring those to the table when we're putting something like curriculum together. So. Um, The text that we're using for my current course is called Developing the Curriculum, and it's by William R. Gordon II, uh, Rosemary T. Taylor, Peter Peter F. Oliva. Sorry, apparently I can't speak anymore in quarantine. Um, But that text is really designed to kind of figure out how the curriculum works as a larger body. So in theory, kind of how things come together. Um, But it doesn't necessarily... um, tackle or take a really deep dive into 
kind of how those personal biases and prejudices impact curriculum and kind of the negative uh, implications of all of those things. So thankfully, this week, my prof gave us the option to read a few additional texts that focus on diversity in the curriculum and some of the the, the things that might be problematic with, uh, with our own, with bringing our own views kind of into curriculum development. I read through um, one of the texts, which was called Reconsidering Canadian Curriculum Studies, Provoking Historical, Present, and Future Perspectives, which was edited by Nicholas Ngafuk and Jennifer Rotman. And the particular article that we read as part of that anthology um, is called Provoking Curriculum Studies in Multicultural Societies. And that was written by Denise Agiakun. And what I loved about this is that it starts with uh, the following quotation. It says, nowadays, most nations may be labeled, labeled culturally diverse since different ethnic, racial, and religious groups live together. In most cases, these societies turn to education, holding it responsible for both problems and solutions. And immediately, obviously, I was struck because I I connected um, kind of my theories and my reconstructivist approach to education So that reconstructivist mindset believes that school is the catalyst for social change. I believe I believe that so firmly because I've seen the reverse in action. I've seen how harmful pedagogy curriculum and praxis, um, how it continues to oppress marginalized groups of students. Like if I didn't believe that school had the ability to do the opposite and teach others about equity and social justice, I truthfully wouldn't be teaching. Remember, Andre and I were not those teachers that used to line up our bears and teach them and, you know, impart our knowledge. We we got into education because we wanted to see change happen because we experienced things in our education system that just didn't fit um, within our lived experience. Like it was very anti-Black and very racist. And you have to keep in mind that I was or I am an 80s baby raised in the 90s. And Andre is a 90s baby raised in the 2000s. Like our schooling uh for the most part, or really all of our schooling took place after the Stephen Lewis report on race relations was released in 1992. And yet we continued to face all of those things that were highlighted in that report through our years of schooling. So it was no surprise. Um, you remember at the end of season one, when Andre and I talked about diving into the Ministry of Education's report on anti-Black racism in our school board, uh, the Peel District School Board, that whole report says most of the same things that the Stephen Lewis report in 1992 said. So it's scary to think that we are facing a lot of the same issues we've been facing for the last 30 years. That's problematic. So if we connect this back to some of the things that I've been learning about in terms of how curriculum is developed, there are multiple um, levels of individuals who are responsible for getting curriculum together. And one of the groups that is often largely overlooked are the stakeholders. And this whole ministry review really came about through stakeholder-led activism. Parents, teachers, and staff really fought to ensure that the Peel Board was held accountable for their anti-Black racism. This 
curriculum steering, as I'm going to call it, um, directly highlighted is directly highlighted in that uh, developing the curriculum text that I talked about. Um, And I'm going to read you a quote from that. It says both internal stakeholders, so staff, students and district level personnel and external stakeholders, so parents, community Uh, community members and businesses have a critical role to play in improving student outcomes. Therefore, involving stakeholders in initiatives is wise if managed properly. To sustain success in school initiatives, parent and community involvement in schools must go beyond social activities and fundraising efforts to address student achievement head on. And school staff must lead this effort. When schools, districts, parents, and community groups collaborate and align their efforts around student achievement, more students will succeed. Success can be sustained and public education will be at its best. Um, And that quote, even though it was in that book, actually came from the U.S. Department of Education in 2009. So again, 11 years ago, they were saying things like this. However, if you've been following the news, um, for those of you who live in the greater Toronto area, you know or you watched black parents, or not just black parents, but primarily black parents sit in on the Peel Board meetings and fight for their children's rights to fair education. So under the anti-black racism recommendations, number 18 stated that the board is to undertake a comprehensive diversity audit of schools, including naming, mascots, libraries, and classrooms. This should include evaluating books, media, and other resources currently being used in schools for teaching and learning English, history, and social sciences to ensure that they are inclusive and culturally responsive relevant and reflective of the student bodies and voices and broader school communities. This directive ties directly to curriculum development and implementation because the choices of many of our materials are directly related to the curriculum we've been prescribed. Um, As most of you are aware, I'm really cognizant of the materials I bring into my classroom and the way my classroom looks. Uh, Flexible seating uh, was a big deal for me or is a big deal for me because I feel like it best represents the idea of a student-centered space where students get to choose their seating or a space that makes them feel comfortable and lets them do their best work. That's my kind of progressivism um, or that's the progressivism in my education philosophy, the idea that student voice matters. Um, The walls in my classroom are purposely adorned in diverse spaces. Um, And then you have things like my social justice word wall because All of these things are super important to me. It's important that my students see themselves reflected in the curriculum. So if we go back to that um, provoking curriculum studies in multicultural societies text, um, Denise Agiakun talks about the disconnect between home life and school life for students because of linguistic or cultural differences and notes that curriculum takes a form where the content taught as well as the teaching approach are literally foreign to minority students. And when I read this, I immediately thought to myself, uh, yeah, no kidding, because as the curriculum um, development text highlights, the idea for curriculum is uniformity and consistency so that every child is given the same piece of information in the same delivery format because of that um, no child left behind policy or yeah no child left behind act of 2001 so the hope 
I like again in a in a picturesque world for them the hope was that if you centralized curriculum no one could say that they didn't learn something um but it didn't account for student learning and how students learn um and what they absorb or the schemas that they came in with because what you have to understand about schema is that the more connections a student can make to a topic, the more synapses in their brain fire, and the more likely they are to retain that information. Uh, Agia Kuhn goes on to say that serious as this discontinuity may be, it has some even more dire consequences. In this process, the decisive agent is, wittingly or not, the school and particularly the teacher who plays the main part in promoting the dominant culture and in facilitating the assimilation to the dominant norms of the linguistic and culturally diverse children. So again, the idea is to make everyone aspire to whiteness, which is what Andre and I talk about often. Um, And that's exactly how anti-blackness is perpetuated because it is literally the antithesis um, to whiteness. And so for those of you joining the podcast for the first time, because again, I know a lot of you haven't listened before, if you are joining me from my curriculum development course, um, please go back and listen to some of the other episodes that Andre and I have done regarding um, what whiteness is in relation to white people or being white and whiteness as a concept. Um, Because in this instance, I am referring to whiteness, the concept, which I'm not going to go over right now. At the end of all of that, it leaves me grappling with some things. I never want to come onto the podcast and have everyone think that I have all the answers because I don't. Um, I struggle with a lot of concepts and how they all kind of fit together. Like for me, I've got a bunch of puzzle pieces and they almost fit, but they just don't yet. Like I'm missing, I'm missing something that makes them all fit together. In this instance, I wonder how it's possible to continue a centralized curriculum development body while ensuring diversity and inclusion. Like, how do we decide what students need to learn at each stage of their education? Um, Is it even important anymore? Because my reconstructivist mind says that if you can spell onomatopoeia, but you can't think critically and deconstruct information, have we as educators prepared you for anything other than next week's spelling test? Um, that's something that I struggle with. I'm also wrestling with the idea of who gets to decide what's important. Um, Because right now we have um, people that are picked or apply to the ministry. And then again, they sit and they design, but it doesn't take into context kind of the larger body of educators. Obviously, I personally believe that social justice and critical thinking are important, but again, at what cost? Like somebody else is going to come in with a different opinion and say, that's not helping them learn anything. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't love tests and memorization. Um, I really want to build thinkers. And none of that has been more apparent uh, to me now than during our COVID-19 pandemic. Parents, teachers, and students are all worried about, um, are worried about the fact that students won't be what they deem prepared for next year because they lost out on traditional schooling. But in my eyes, if I have done my job the way I believe education should be structured, my students will know how to find information. They'll know how to unpack and grapple with information. And then 
they'll know what to do with that information once they've analyzed it. Like if I've done my job, they've built skills and loaded up their toolbox of resources. They've learned to treat those around them with respect. Uh, They've learned to ask for consent. They've learned that privilege is real and that they can facilitate change. Um, If I've only ever taught them that things happen, so we've cataloged an inventory of events, um, but we haven't really dug into the, the how or the why or the what next, Um, then I feel like they're ill-equipped to take on the world around them. Um, So I don't know. I'm still truthfully grappling a lot with curriculum development. And before taking this course, I would have told you that it was so much more simple than it is. Like, here's what we teach them. Here's what they learn and be done. But in, in, in realizing that... You know, it's far more complex than one person deciding, you know, what's best for our students. I think there are some things that I still have have left to figure out. So I'm not going to leave you with a nice, neat little package this week. I, I don't know. We're still we're still figuring it out. And truthfully, maybe we'll put this to Andre when he gets back. So that way we can kind of grapple with it together and see what we both think, because I think that'll be an interesting topic for us both. So with that, I'm going to shut it down because there are four hungry bear cubs waiting for dinner and I can hear them stomping and yelling upstairs and people are starting to yell. Um, Hopefully the next time you hear me, Andre will be around too. So it's not just my voice. So thanks again for listening and we'll chat soon. Peace out.